You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends. Hey, welcome to the episode. Uh, man, listen, a double treat. First of all, an Aussie guest today, which for my, particularly my US listeners, like managing leadership anxiety is global. Let's not kid ourselves here. But for our US listeners, every American I know needs at least one more Aussie in your life. <laughs> and uh, this Aussie, my guest today, he's already in your life. I've got Mark Sayers on the podcast. Mark from the This Cultural Moment podcast with John Mark Comer. Mark Sayers, who's written so many great provocative books to help us think about culture and the gospel and the intersection of both. I remember, Mark, honestly, I don't remember now if I was reading it or hearing you talk about Japanese cigarette advertising and the gospel. And I was like, <laughs> this is a guy I want to learn from. Um, and, and the second treat is, is Mark is doing double duty. He's not just an Aussie, a blessing in itself, but he's also uh, written uh, a book coming out in May, not quite released yet, uh, coming out in May. And the book is called Non-Anxious Presence. That should light up all of my listeners. Um, it's not technically a Bowen theory book, but it's very much informed by systems theory, as well as Mark's incredible brain. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Really great to be able to chat. Yeah, a treat a treat for me too. I've been a great aficionado and, and listener to you and, and reader of yours for, for quite a while. So this is this is fun for me. Let's get right into non-anxious presence. Just maybe just start by telling us uh, what generated the impulse to write the book and then we'll kind of dive into some of the nerd stuff. Yeah, I felt that um, there was a significant change occurring in the world and the pandemic was, um, there's a great line by the Indian novelist Arundhati Roy, and she wrote in the Financial Times at the beginning of the pandemic that pandemics are portals and where you go from one world to another. Mm. And it's not just about the pandemic, it's about all the changes that happens. And so I began to think we're moving stages here, we're moving into some kind of new phase. Um, often people will go, oh, it's this new era now, and here's how the church and leaders have got to adjust to this new era. I actually felt that we're actually in an in-between stage and I call that the grey zone. So like a new era hasn't been born, but it's clearly we've left something. We don't know exactly know where we're going. Yeah. And you can see elements of the old, elements of the new. Um, but I, re- I realised that that brings a lot of anxiety. Like if it was like we're in the new era, here's all the rules, this is how it works, everyone's like, great, I can adjust. When you're like, don't know if it's beginning, ending. Some people think they're back in 2019. Some people think they're in 2027. So I wanted to equip people how to understand that. And I think that, again, fascinated by systems theory, I think networks and systems theory and cybernetics and all of this is, you know, a model of what the world is now. And I felt like the pandemic, you know, read about that for a while, talked about that for a while, but I felt the pandemic was a crash course in those dynamics. Yeah. And so the pandemic... I remember back March 2020, the world locks down. We're trying to figure out gathering and not gathering. And, uh, you know, I naively thought, boy, we're going to have a great Easter. We're going to just come back great. And, and here we are a couple of years in. And like you said, we're not in the, the not yet. Mm. We're no longer in the, the was. We're in this ambiguity. Now, I do think not just faith leaders, but just people who take their faith seriously ambiguity wears us down. We, we do want to know more than we get to know. Uh, how can you help us get 
get clarity in the ambiguity? What I realized about ambiguity, ambiguity is a revealer. I begin the book with a movie that I've been obsessed with for years that I wanted to write about. And I felt there was something in the movie I could never get out, which was uh, Orson Welles' The Third Man. And The Third Man is set in Vienna. And as a kid, I would watch, I watched lots of World War II movies. I don't know if growing up in Australia, they always used to have like black and white movies at lunchtime on the weekend and you'd watch them and, and uh, all these World War II movies. There's three channels that we had back then. <laughs> exactly. It yeah. was like clear who were the bad guys and the good guys. The allies were good. Nazis bad. And I remember seeing The Third Man when I was a kid and it was really weird because it was just after the war and you don't know who's good and bad. And the final scene of the movie is a character called Harry Lyme who's an American and he's being chased by these soldiers in German uniforms, yet he's the bad guy. And they're in this like subterranean sewer in Vienna and there's all these themes. So like it's the submerged in an ambiguous, ambiguous place. So the war's ended but it hasn't really... Vienna's ruled by different powers. It's the Cold War's beginning, World War II's ending. And in that, Harry Lyme, who the main character looks up to, he wants to go into business with him, but he's revealed as, a, as this criminal and how the war and this sort of gray, sp gray space, this gray zone has changed him. And I realize that's true of leaders, like the, the pandemic and ambiguity. When we didn't have those moorings and those stabilities, ability to plan Sunday services or, or you know, we had to lead in a different way, it revealed all this stuff. And socially too. I mean, you look at, um, you know, Black Lives Matter comes in the midst of the pandemic. Right. Um, there were farmers protests in places like India. All this stuff came up. So I felt like ambiguity is the great revealer, which is really hard and, and tough, but also actually is a gift because, like, again, Harry Lum's in the sewer. What's in the sewer comes up in the midst of crisis and ambiguity. Well, and you've been warning us about this for quite some time. Like you've been a really a helpful cultural analyst for pa particularly pastors, I think, helping us make sense of how culture is shifting. I, I do think the Aussie context is such a gift because we are a secular culture. And if mm. you can help integrate the gospel into a largely indifferent culture, mm. you know, it's, it's a real gift. But okay, so then pandemic comes. Uh, one of the great gifts of systems theory is helping us notice recurring predictable patterns. And that's some of the work you've done in this book is you've taken a look at systems at a larger level. What are a couple of the recurring predictable patterns that you've, you've seen? Well, I reckon almost every country went into it in their own way. What I sound, found so interesting is like every country's sort of national trait came to the surface. Mm. In Australia, it was even like we did this I think the first phase was quite successful. There was this sense of we locked down and, you know, deaths were kept to this real low level and closed the border, you know. So, like, Australia went back to being an island. All these Aussies came back from overseas. It was, it was sort of fascinating. Um, and it worked well for, like, 18 months. And then when Delta came and then Omicron, it didn't work and you had to change tactics. And yeah. you could see that people were struggling and then, like, um, your former state, Western Australia, <laughs> Western Australia, like, you know, they've sort of kept going. We've kept locking it down, but Omicron's there. And so, yeah. you know, that was one Australian, um, I think, idea. But what, what I found fascinating is when the pandemic began, I thought I, everyone's going to learn this lesson. But I'm really realizing now, like, everyone hasn't learned the ingrained lessons that got revealed. Only a very few who are prepared, I think, to go with God and take a hard good look at what's actually going on in the system and the totality of the system are the ones that grow. <laughs> and so, you know, I feel like there are church leaders I've met and they've been profoundly changed by God. They saw their own dysfunctions. They saw their own 
you know, pride or need for change and humility and growth. Others have just kept running forward. And I'm seeing them I'm like, mate, I was having chats with you a year ago. I thought you were going to get this. You're not now. So, yeah, yeah so I, I think it's it's entrenched, you know, some of the, you know, and that movie, you know, Don't Look Up, you know, I don't know if you saw that. It's just like, a, yes. you know, it's just like there's, a, there's an asteroid coming towards the Earth and you're still not getting it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then once you once you identify the recurring predictable pattern, then of course you're looking for the absurd attempted solution, which is I'm going to do more of the same, and I'm and then if that doesn't work, I'm then just going to try harder yes. at doing more of the same. What would be a couple of examples there you've seen? Like I'll, I'll I'll give an example. Like one of the things I noticed with a lot of pastors, particularly when pandemic first hit, is we produced more stuff. We mm-hmm. just felt this need to produce content for people. And I think it had more to do with our anxiety because we didn't know what to do mm. than it actually did to help people. Mm. What might be a more of the same try harder system that you've seen? I think that programs and we've got to make them shinier and more attractive to get the people back. Mm. And it's similar to what's happening with sort of urban cores or central business districts around the world. You know, like here in Melbourne, a lot of people have gone, I don't like commuting 50 minutes into the office. I want to come in three days a week. and But you've got the, the city councils like, no, we're going to give you vouchers and we're going to put up decorations downtown. And you're like, it's not going to work. I thought church was a bit similar. Like, we're going to like do more to get you to come back. And and I feel like people, yeah. what people want now, it's, it's, it's different. People have taken stock of their lives. People want, they want social connection. They don't want to show. They're coming back. I think what's happened in Melbourne uh, I've noticed is a lot of the cultural Christians, nominal Christians have gone. Um, yeah. So the people we're getting, they're like, oh, I'm here, let's go. And so I'm like, I've got to see that and recognize that and push into that versus like, let's get every person who left back. So I think, yeah, doing more of that sort of attractional church thing is I'm, I'm seeing that all over the place. I really like that. We, we, we noticed that um, we had quite a turnover at our church through the two years. You know, of course. So, so we we've always been a very politically diverse church. So, I think we lost both extremes of both American political wings. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the disgruntled people. We're now mostly left with gruntled people, which it turns out is my preference. I think. Yes. But we also ran into that same thing, Mark. Of um, I remember being backstage with our band and uh, for a Sunday service. This is just a few months ago. Sat next to a young lady named Jessica. I'd never met her before. We're about to have our pre-service prayer and meeting and communion. And I said, oh, Jessica, my name's Steve. Um, how long have you been coming to Discovery? And she said, oh, this is my second week. Mm. Second week? Like, she's like, yeah, last week was my first week, and now I'm running a camera for you guys. And it was that desire in her and, and so many people, like, let get me in. Let me be mm. part of this thing. Mm. And it's been, we've had to adjust to that, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a different, I think it's, you know, if you feel like Maslow's hierarchy, it's like before, you know, it's like the needs have gone down into more like, key stuff people want, whereas mm-hmm. before it's like, you know, I've got all that taken care of. Society takes care of it. The world's going to take care of it. That's been exposed. So I think people have gone down Maslow's hierarchy, um, and we're just not used to that, a lot of pastors, you know. So, yeah. I love that. I'd love to hear more. I've never thought about it that way, Mark, that mm-hmm. the idea that people are getting down to their more base fundamental needs what else do you have to tell us about that? Yeah, it was interesting. Like before the pandemic, I read a book, um, I think it's called Cultural Evolution by Ronald Engelhart. I think it is. He's a, he's a 
sort of sociologist and he looks at religion and he says that secularism is linked to scarcity and survival. So countries where you're, everything's provided, so you look at, say, you know, part of people go, what's the most secular cultures in the world? Oh, they'll look at, say, the Scandinavian nations, maybe like yep. Australia, New Zealand, Canada. What, what's unique about them? You go to the freedom indexes, the lifestyle indexes, the political healthy democracies, they're all at the top. Um, and so everything's provided for. And then you go down the bottom, you know, and you find other countries like in Afghanistan or whatever, it's, it's much more religious. And his argument, but I don't fully buy it, like I don't think belief in God is just linked to your material well-being. But he said that at the top, when you get to that, that like secondary questions, questions of identity become more important. But then as you get down into um, like you're facing a crisis, it's life and death, your health is at stake, your financial uh, needs are at stake, uh, people have di- very different questions going on. And I felt like particularly churches in the West, we were trying to like, we were in this like very secular reality where everything was provided for. So we're trying to get people's attention you know, mm. we'll improve, we'll improve, your life's pretty good, we'll improve you by 10%, we'll make mm. you more yeah. functioning. Whereas like the pandemic hits and people like, at the beginning, people go, am I going to die? People have lost people, people have lost jobs, whole neighbourhoods yeah. have changed. So how you preach in that is very different, how you minister in that. And I don't, I don't think that's, I think the churches in, in areas which are perhaps, you know, more financially challenged, which get that. But I think a lot of churches didn't realise that change, that, that there's now an existential risk in the world, and that's not going to go away. I mean, again, we mentioned—I just mentioned—don't look up. There's an environmental risk. There's political risks. As we speak yeah. here, uh, I know this may come out later, but you know, I'll just look at the news this morning, and you know, is, is Russia going to invade Ukraine? <laughs> like, yeah. you know. So I think the world we're heading into is—and this is what I was trying to get in the book—the world we're heading into is a much more risky world, and that changes people how they view Maslow's hierarchy. Ah, oh, yeah, I really like that. Then the other challenge is um, if people are being conditioned with a 10%, if the gospel is a 10% improvement on my life, it feels like a whole new conversion to go back to what's a bit more New Testament, which is Roman culture would like to kill you. And if the Roman culture doesn't kill you, then uh, a friendly neighborhood bacteria is going to take you out at 32 years of age. That feels like a pretty whiplash move from one to the other for the wealthy church, right? Which I would just say that the the basic Western church is a broad statement as a wealthy church. Mm. How are we going to make that move? <laughs> I think by us changing mm. and leaders changing. And I think that, I think what, what was one of the biggest revealers of the pandemic is that people's churches were more fragile than they realized. Uh, I know people who have got small Anglican churches here in Australia, like 80 people, and they've been more resilient than I know people who are running very large contemporary churches. Uh, the, the social connections were deeper in those smaller churches. Not every small church, but, you know, some. Sure. Whereas the yeah. other ones were great at attracting a crowd and providing stuff for people. Once they couldn't do, once they didn't have the lever of Sunday to pull, um, people disappeared. So I think that, okay, that then what does that raise in us, you know, this with leaders? And, and I think I saw when the pandemic happened and, it raised this stuff in leaders like, hang on, maybe I don't have the levers of influence that I thought I had. And I think that's an invitation to lead in a much more biblical, you know, as you said, New Testament way. So we get to a New Testament church through leading in a more New Testament way. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to the title of your book, Non-Anxious Presence, the the fundamental present uh, premise of at least Bowen systems theory is that a leader takes responsibility for themselves. Mm-hmm. 
And if you can manage your own anxiety, then you can connect to other people rather mm. than being tossed and turned by it. And therefore, your title, the non-anxious presence. Mm. What would be a couple of ways, Mark, for you that you notice when you're spun up and reactive? Mm. What would be a couple of signs? And then maybe what would be one or two tools that you've found helpful to then move from spun up to calm? Well, part, part of, I guess that's sort of unique, not uniqueness, because I'm not the only one, but I think part of my story um, uh, and I wrote I wrote about this in, in my book, Facing Leviathan, is that at 30 I was diagnosed with bipolarity. And bipolarity is a mood disorder. Um, <laughs> it's an intense element of sometimes moments of sort of quite joyful, almost, you know, going into mania and then times yeah. of real sort of lows. And then there were stages where it was what called a mixed episode, which is, you know, really intense, both happy and sometimes very, very anxious so I think I, I had to sort of go to special forces school of <laughs> managing my my anxiety because um, I, when when it happened, I had a episode on stage and walked off stage in my church, very in front of everyone, and that was a long, you know, almost two decades ago now. Um, yeah. So I realised very early that I had to manage, I, you know, I, I had to manage that, and I became very aware of my feelings, how I was communicating just the little cues and stuff like that um so i think it's something like people come to later for me it's sort of been very linked to my ability to do ministry is managing that um so i just have a lot of self-awareness when am i getting too manic um when am i getting too down so i'm constantly monitoring that and you know i even notice like you know writing a book when i have too many things on you know i can i'm watching those things and how is that then flowing out into how i'm interacting with people in ministry and so on and a couple of things is you know monitoring and second having good people around me who just a few you know my wife a couple of other friends my my brother comes to my church um, who know this so i'm not like super i don't talk about this all the time but yeah. they're like hey you talk a bit fast there that's going on so I think that's it's like God. It was a really horrible time to go through, but I felt like God used that in my life to prepare me for what's almost happening to the world now. Um, so yeah, that's probably how I've processed all that. I love that answer for so many reasons, Mark. I, I've got a friend of mine who built a really thriving ministry, and uh, let's see, eight years into it, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm. And I remember him coming to me as a, as a friend and he's like, I, I can't stay in ministry, I'm bipolar. Mm. Mm. And several of us, it wasn't just me, we're like, what are you talking about? Look what, look at the fruit of your ministry. You know, mm. it's, so just the simple idea that, you know, we all have a thorn in our flesh of some kind and God really does make his power perfect in our weakness. I just think we always want to graduate from that as quick as we mm. can, that we can be powerful. But I love how you modeled for us that you also have people around you who can show you yourself when you can't see it. Mm -hmm. And it's been my experience, like my listeners know I do a lot of work in managing anxiety for leaders. Mm -hmm. It's it's now my full-time work. And it's surprising to them how hard it is to know how they feel in any given moment. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the gifts is just to have people in your life who will tell you. Mm -hmm. I know in my life, I have to sit for a while to figure out how I feel. If someone says, how are you feeling? I don't normally have an answer at the ready. Mm. How do you, like, it sounds like you've set for yourself parameters for the manic and the depressive. Mm. What are your signs as you're getting close to one or the other where you know you want to intervene in some way? I think when I start seeing the world very darkly and get very sort of tired, um, I think it's when you're going downwards and sort of things feel hopeless. 
And and I think what I realized is, you know, I, when you get right to the bottom, it was bad. So, you know, what like when you're in a plane and, you know, previous before the pandemic, I used to fly and, you know, you say fly to America and you're in this long sort of space and then you sort of notice there's a bit of movement in the cabin, the lights come on a little bit, they dimly, and then you start to smell the breakfast being cooked as you're about to land in LA or something. So you notice the signs before you land. What I realized is in the past, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be hitting, the wheels would be hitting the ground. I'm like, I've landed. I'm like, lights, smell some bacon. Um, so like, yeah, just those initial things. And then I think with with main, like the more manic side, what, what's been really interesting is, you know, I often have people say to me, Mark, you write this book and, you know, you joke before about, you know, Japanese cigarette advertising or using this thing. Yes. Part of that is my obsessive yeah brain and that ability to think very quickly and link all this stuff so it's it's a curse but also it's a gift and there's an interesting do- uh, documentary with the co- british comedian stephen fry on um, bipolarity and a lot of them called it that curse and a gift and he asked all of them and all bar one of the people he interviewed if they could press a button and make bipolar go away all but one said they wouldn't press the button and so i sort of yeah. feel like that i feel like it's enabled me to, my mind operates at this level and it can operate this very quick level and making linkages. There's a point when I'm making linkages that don't make sense. And yeah. so just when I'm talking too fast, thinking too fast, people don't get it. And I realized when I was younger, I would surround myself with lots of very creative out there thinkers. And we were all probably a bit like that. So yeah, yeah. I just, I, I sort of have to watch that a little bit. Um, I think it just takes time. It, it, it takes perseverance. It's not an, an instant. Uh, thing it's retraining your life in in a very different way um and and one thing that might be just helpful for people as well is the same thing happened to me when it happened you're like do i do i do ministry do i continue yeah and and it was really interesting i felt i felt god say to me your your life's gonna be very different you're not going to be able to do as many things as other people but i still will use you so it's really bizarre i live in australia when i was traveling i'd only travel twice a year I am not a pastor who's working 80 hours a week. You know, I work the standard hours. I'm around my family all the time. So I felt like that was a sacrifice. But then God's used me. And I feel like there's another message there for people out there. You don't have to run. Like, I ha- I can't do as much. Most pastors listening, I can't do as much of you because of my condition. But God still used me. And, it, and it's shown me his strength in my weakness of not being able to do as yeah. much. So, yeah, there's just a few, I guess, little helpers that are Profoundly helpful, what, what you're sharing that. I've never heard before that the simple idea that you can figure out your landing before the wheels. That's an amazing metaphor that I think everyone can then adapt to themselves. Mm. You know, very different from you. I cut my teeth on hospital chaplaincy. That was Mm. my early formation. And it was death every day, walking into death every day. Mm. And then learning as a young Aussie, you know, a lot of us Aussies, we work hard at looking laid back. That's the way I would describe us. We work very hard at giving you the impression that we're not anxious. Mm. And um, for me, death and people in grief, first time in my adult life where I was out of my depth, mm. where I couldn't manage the room, and I couldn't use my charisma leadership skills to m- manipulate people. Mm. And, and then for me, the terror of discovering under the surface all this fear mm. that I didn't even know I had. Um, similar journey, God's power made perfect in weakness. Mm. I think what I want to say to you, Mark, is like I first heard you on the um, This Cultural Moment podcast. Mm, mm. I don't remember how I found it. If someone told me about it, it mm. was a, a while ago. And um, as somebody who does not have the intellect that you have and could not cut, keep up with you in quoting sources and things, 
your ability to put a path that I can walk is pretty stunning to me. Uh, when John Mark was interviewing you and you're, you're doing some of the cultural analysis and you're taking what seems to be disparate ideas and making them connected, mm. uh, it lit me up. I mean, mm. it really was exhilarating. Mm. And so just to, to get to connect with you and hear your own journey and then see, man, look how the Lord is using you in a unique way that God's not really using anyone else. It's, mm. I'm sure you've heard that before, but it's, mm. um, it's really profound. Mm. Well, I think it's also like, I also feel like God's used used me as a sort of, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't want to go through it again. But, you know, like I, because of my mental health condition, I, in year 11, which is our second last year of high school in Australia, you know, I was asked to leave. Not because I was a bad, like I was causing problems. I was actually a well-behaved student, but I couldn't do school properly. I didn't have a university degree. I had to sort of learn my own way. And so... I laugh like, you know, my, my thing growing up, the sort of script was you're not smart, you're hopeless. So it's just, you know, I hear these stories and it's still like surreal for me. Um, but I feel like God's done that as well because I think there's these paths that we've got to have this, you know, we've got to achieve that thing. We've got to get to that smart. And my testimony is is that God can use the most unlikely people, you know, <laughs> the yeah. foolish things of this world. Um, That's right. Um, yeah. Well, and I think what you're also sharing for us is that I think all God wants out of us is to be exactly human-sized. Mm. And and God can use an exactly human-sized follower with the power of his Holy Spirit to do mm. really incredible things. Mm. Um, before we get to the gauntlet of anxiety questions, which I know you've probably been giddy about, you know, they're coming and <laughs> it's so exciting for all of us. But before we get to that, is there anything else in the Non-Anxious Presence book that you want to make sure we cover? Mm. Because uh, when this episode comes out, the book will be coming out, I think, mm. three weeks after the episode. So people will be able to pre-order mm. it. Mm. Um, I, I usually, if it's a systems book, I'm just buying it. So mm. um, what else would you like us to know about it before we move into the gauntlet? I think I felt like... Partially writing the book as well, I have that experience of living in Australia, traveling, and particularly, with, I guess, with a lot of the audience in the US, but also other countries of how anxiety, like we often think a lot of people are hearing this going, oh, how does that system of anxiety or how does anxiety flow through the system? That's my church, the organization I'm leading. I was really fascinated by geopolitics, <laughs> how it was happening in the world. And so traveling to the US regularly for years and years and years and sort of being there probably a month of year, but leaving I could just see probably from 2015, every time I would get back, just intuitively on the street, everything getting more anxious. And so that's really what I'm wrestling with as well in the book. How has the world gotten more anxious, you know, and polarized? And I think people see polarization as a battle of ideas. And yes, it is. But actually, my reading is it's a systems theory issue. And it's actually about anxiety. And people are pushing back into these two stories, two political stories to explain the anxiety happening in the world. So that's also what I'm trying to get at there um, in the book, which just might be of interest to people, probably haven't got time to go into it all. But I think that's a helpful way to reframe. And what I saw pastors, and when I'm talking to my friends in the US and Europe, them getting drawn... They'd be like, oh, yeah, systems theory, anxiety, I get all that. But then I could see them drawing it in a political way that actually is not really about politics. Like, I like politics. I like ideas. You know, you think about politics, it's like, what's that policy? How many bridges are we going to build? What, what's our education yeah. policy? What do we do with hospitals? Yeah. Politics is actually really, in some ways, boring and yeah, very mundane. technical. Yeah. But then yeah. what's happening is it's all anxiety and fear and psychological stuff coming up. 
So that's just, I suppose, a little teaser for people um, what I was also trying to get at. Well, let's, without further ado, get into the uh, gauntlet. So, uh, you know, anxiety is obviously a big word and it, it has elements where it, it requires psychiatric medicine and mm. then there's things like trauma. But mm. the field that we focus on on this show and in my book is chronic anxiety. Mm. Uh, chronic anxiety being built on a false need. So one question, Mark, is what is something that you believe you need in the moment that you don't actually need? So in other words, when you don't get it, you get anxious. So for me, I'm like a chronic people pleaser. If somebody's not happy with me, my mm. first response is anxiety. Mm. What would be maybe a false need that you have mm. uh, that maybe you don't actually need? I'll give you a live example. <laughs> so I'm thinking about this. I, I think because I mentioned like I, I, with my bipolarity, there's an element where often I'm like, okay, I've got to be careful here. Am I going to space where people are not going to understand it or whatever? So as I said, I've got those people around me that are like my little feedback loops. I will find myself in situations where I'm talking a podcast, talking somewhere, and they're not there. So I need that little feedback loop. So we do a podcast called Rebuilders, and our last episode we did, and there's a moment in the midst of it where we're talking about stuff, and I'm like, am I capturing this? So I've got that little script in my head like, are you getting this right, Mark? Is this two manic thoughts? Are you linking stuff that's not linking? And in the room I've got my co-host, Liddy, and, the, and Daniel, who's like our producer. And so I realized I was looking at them. So I'm talking and I'm looking at them and they're both almost like not responsive. And I'm like, oh man, I've, I've lost them here. So it's that little script. I've lost them there. It can then go to Mark's not smart. He's messing this up. And then I'm like, oh man. And I sort of just got through it. And you can go back and watch this in real time on the YouTube uh, video of it. And then we <laughs> stopped and, and it was silent. And we finished recording. I'm like, guys, was that okay? Was I like confusing you there? And they were both like, no, we're actually hit by what you just said. And like Liddy had tears and I was like, oh, man. like I was so off. Like my read was so off. So I think you, you, like in that space, God was using that moment. And they were both like, wow, the Holy Spirit really convicted us. Like we're doing a podcast and we're moved. And I'd, so I felt like I'd say, you don't always need those little feedbacks. Yeah, they're helpful, but sometimes I'm just going to be with you because you can't always have that there. Oh, good. Systems theory at its at least classic beginning is really interested in family of origin. You know, the idea that we bring our childhood right into our adulthood. Mm. And um, so something that I think I'm always interested in, Mark, is uh, what might be a trait from your family of origin that's a real asset to you? Mm. And then what might be a trait that's a liability to you? Mm-hmm. Well, I think my, I think of my family as our kitchen table in many ways. And I had a friend who used to come and his family, his parents got divorced and he used to come to our house and love spending time at our kitchen table. And it was fun. We talk about faith. We talk about politics. So a lot of the stuff, like I talk on the stuff, I grew up doing that around the kitchen table. And um, but also my parents, I could see my parents were processing their lives where they came through. But they did that with us, and and they talked about I think their struggles and difficulties and growth and how God intersected in difficult moments. And so I think that was just such a fantastic environment to grow in. And I think talking and processing things. And throwing around ideas has been a really great trait. And not just intellectual. You know, sometimes it was intellectual. 7 o'clock news on Channel 2, we talk about that. Other times it was what we were going through as a family or my father talking about something he's struggling with or my mum. 
So I think that was a really helpful thing. You know, my mum's father came back from the war and it's funny, I'm thinking more about my grandfather's. So my mum's grandfather came back from the war, you know, worked as a fish and chip shop owner, sort of classic working class environment in a suburb called Dandenong here in Melbourne, which is a real sort of working class subject, my suburb. My dad, his dad was like trade unionist, very working class sort of, you know, um, and it's interesting, their model of Aussie masculinity, like I would have never identified with it when I was younger. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned before that how Aussies have to portray a certain thing, like we come across very laid back. Yeah. And when I was younger, I would have never thought I'd be like them. And I was, I was, in, I was in the suburb where, which is now gentrified, like the inner north of Melbourne where the Sayers come from, which used to be super working class, a bit rough, and um, it's now gentrified. But they'll knock down a building and then behind, because uh, everything's making apartments, they'll knock down a building and then behind like the old 1950s, you know, like advertising hoarding will be revealed. And I was, I was reflecting, I was, I was driving through that and I thought, I feel a bit like that as I get older, the older Aussie working class, even though I didn't grow up, my parents, like my dad studied hard and we got to grow up in a better neighbourhood. But I see traits of those masculine figures, not my parents so much, but around and that Aussie male and particularly the thing of don't show anxiety or it's more don't ask for help. Yes. And I think particularly now most of the people I lead are younger than me, millennials, who are, you know, very feelings-driven and, and you know, very connected to peers. And I sort of had that thing like, oh, man, like as I get – it's like that neighbourhood. As I'm getting older, it's like you're knocking back a building and then here's this older version of Aussie male, don't ask for help. If you're sick, don't go to the doctor. You know, you've got needs. You don't don't be indebted to someone. Be everyone's yeah. mate. Be laid back. Um, so I just wonder if, yeah, I'm watching that at the moment. So that's an unexpected plot twist later in life. <laughs> May I ask how old you are now? I am 47. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're about in the same range. I've got a few years on you, but um, yeah, I... I I, I would describe in my family, which was like the way you describe your family warmly, like a wonderful family of origin, but others have it worse is one of the messages. Mm, yes. And it's not that bad. Whatever's, whatever you're going through, it's not that bad. You know? mm. And um, what I've had to learn, Mark, is how profoundly that negatively affects my prayer life because I never ask mm. God for anything. Yeah. by default. Because others have it worse. I don't want to take, it's the idea of a poverty mindset, a finite mm. set of things that God has. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. So let's talk about, you know, you're a pastor there at Red Church. Mm. And um, I think one of the great challenges for pastors is when we experience a gap Mm. between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. Mm. And so one example of a gap in my life would be, I believe God loves me, but I struggle to experience, for example. Mm. Do you have a gap right now between what you believe and proclaim and what you experience for yourself? I think one of the the toughest things in in ministry is in my life I've had there's sort of these two two tracks that you can have running in a, in a city like Melbourne that's very multicultural. So you can have a church where you've got people who are you know middle class and and you know but then are struggling with anxiety, struggling with different things, and you know increased you know I guess there's a you know, first world problems is I want to, I don't want to <laughs> use that term, but it's apt in, I guess, what I'm describing here. Yeah. Then you can have in your church as well people who are refugees. And, yeah. you know, over the years, I've spent time with people who, you know, I've spoken to Holocaust survivors from the war. I've spoken to people who've been in places like Liberia and Iraq and, you know, Cambodia. 
Um, and, and I think when you talk, like, so there's these two tracks you've got, like you might have a pastor meeting with someone and they're like, I'm struggling with this and I'm not finding meaning at my work and my job's like, my boss is being a bit annoying. You're like, okay, cool, whatever. And, <laughs> um, but then you talk to someone and you hit a and just like, this is just gutting, you know, like, like particularly stuff. I think mm-hmm. it's hidden under the surface in a city like genocide, you know, when you got refugees in your city, like genocide and, yeah. and um, stuff like this. And I think like in those moments, I think it's, it's the hope is, is the thing I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I have that, you know, I preach and believe the hope, but there's moments sometimes when you hear stories are just so depressing. Um, uh, you know, I remember like talking to a guy and, you know, his house had been bombed and he lost his sisters and, um, and you're just like, ah, oh, you know, like the world, when you, I study the world, you know, really in depth and I really try and have a global view and read a lot about things like at the moment, like Ethiopia is, you know, terrible situation and you get into the nit- nitty gritty of it and you think, oh God, how do you turn this around? So I think hope is always that thing. So I have, I have faith <laughs> to get that, 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 Gap, but I think yeah, hope, and maybe also that's because sometimes I can go into the the negative, depressive side. Sometimes um, that can be a gap. Sometimes that that you know the message of Jesus is going to come with hope for the world. Oh man, I mean that. I mean this gauntlet's about you, but it definitely resonates deeply with me, Mark. Like I think my struggle of doubt has been between an interventionist God and deism. Mm. And I just find no satisfaction in deism. It's like a lukewarm bath is deism. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about, like when I hear you talk about Ethiopia and some of these places of conflict and, and profound evil, um, I don't think it's your depressive side. I think it's, mm-hmm. the, it's reality. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, God could do more. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's, you're, you're my first guest who's pinpointed hope. Um, mm-hmm. I'm grateful you brought it up. Mm-hmm. All right. So the final question um, on the gauntlet is is the simple idea, and I think the profound idea that chronic anxiety is cast out by love. Mm. It's very difficult to be in the grip of chronic anxiety when you're enveloped in love. Mm. So when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? I think unquestionably it'd be in moments of God's presence. And I think there's sort of just, just a few moments I've had uh, I think, in a sense, the easiest answer is, you know, family and all of that. And, you know, I, have a, I think I have a great family of origin. I've got a great, you know, father and husband. Um, but I think there's these moments a few times. I think it's when I've been traveling. Like, I, I very rarely get time alone, but I'm traveling. And there's just some moments I had had with God. I think about in 2019, just before, um, uh, on one of the last trips I did, just before things stopped. I remember just being with God in, in, I was in a city in the U S and, um, just by myself for a few hours and just like everything falls down and all the stuff that I do, you just a, a, a faceless person in a city, but then just moments, it's happened a few times actually on trips where you just feel God's love for you despite everything. So it's not because you're a dad and, and it's like you get taken out of your context and you feel like you're in God's love. And I feel like that's probably the moment when it's, you're in God's presence and, um, it's the closest connection to his love. And I think we often think of God's presence falling in a charismatic sense. And, um, you know, I, I believe in all that, but I think it's in this purest form of God's love. Like if God is love incarnate, being in his presence in that form of that, that I think it has to be is the top for me. Yeah. Mark Sayers, you're just, you're a gift to the church in so many ways. And I've been really excited to 
host you on the show. And this has been delightful for me. So thank you very much for coming on Managing Leadership Anxiety. Oh, my pleasure. And I think uh, what a great asset at this time. Um, resources like this are, I think, so many pastors questioning things and, and, and you know, in the midst of anxiety, an- incredibly anxious environment. So, you know, my prayers for everyone listening and, and the, the ongoing success and flourishing of, of this podcast as well and your ministry. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 